Launched in 2006, the Success Academy Charter Schools now serve more than 15,000 mostly disadvantaged students across four New York City boroughs. These students' eye-popping test scores, which exceed even those in New York's most affluent communities, have earned the network high praise from education reformers nationwide. But not all of the attention to success has been favorable. Fueled by sensationalistic media accounts of troubling incidents in two schools, critics have raised doubts about the entire network's discipline policies and question whether its schools are truly open to all students. Now their founder is out with a new memoir in which she addresses her critics head-on, describing her personal journey from city council member to charter school entrepreneur and what she sees as the drivers of success at Success Academies. I'm Marty West, editor of Education Next, and I'm joined today by Eva Moskowitz, founder and CEO of Success Academy Charter Schools and the author of the new memoir, The Education of Eva Moskowitz. You can find a review of the book on the journal's website at www.educationnext.org. Eva, welcome to the EdNext podcast. Thanks for having me. Well, it's great to have you. And it turns out that this is the 100th episode of the podcast, and I can't imagine a better guest with whom to celebrate that anniversary. So let's let's jump in. Uh, Not all listeners will have known that you started your career in earnest in 1999 as a member of the New York City Council and eventually chaired its education committee. You write in the book that you supported charters at the time, but saw them largely as a sideshow. When and how did that change? Well, uh, it it was a slow uh, process. I first uh, did more than a hundred hearings on every conceivable topic. I held hearings on literacy and math and science and the visual arts and dance and theater. I held hearings on procurement and, uh, I got narrower and narrower. One of my last hearings was on toilet paper. I thought surely uh, one could accomplish uh, that. One could get the big bureaucracy to ensure there was toilet paper in the New York City school system. At the time, the budget was $15 billion a year in operating. It's now actually $31 billion a year. Uh, and those series of hearings that I held, uh, in addition to visiting hundreds of schools, where, by the way, I saw many talented people whenever I went on school visits, but I saw a profoundly broken system. And so I spent uh, seven years trying to do everything I could as a public servant to fix and improve, and I found the system really resistant to change. And. Of course, those hearings that you held also involved a close investigation of the city's labor agreements, right? It's union contracts. And that was part of what put a bit of a target on your back as a aspiring politician in New York City. Can you tell us a little bit about how that played out? Sure. I uh, held hearings on uh, the teachers union contract, the principals union contract, and the custodians union contract. And that was, at the time, the third rail. And I knew that by looking under the hood and reading those contracts and studying them and asking questions about them, that my political career uh, Mm -hmm. might very well be over. 
And in fact, the teachers union told me so that if I held these hearings, they would take me out. And they were true to their word. But I um, did hold the hearings, and I think it is in part responsible for the fact that now you can talk about the labor contracts as, as one of many important topics on why the schools are delivering the results they are delivering. I think that's right. And, you know, as you mentioned, the union did take you out effectively by contributing to your defeat in a race for borough president of Manhattan. Um, but that led to the opportunity to you to open your first school in 2006. And when you did so, you sought to replicate almost immediately before even establishing a track record of results with the goal of opening 40 schools within a decade. And so a recurrent theme in the book are these decision points about just how quickly to expand and at every stage, you made the decision to do more. This obviously made your job more difficult and only increased the political opposition facing all of your schools. Why was it so important to you to grow so quickly? Well, it wasn't about growth. Uh, it was really about the great educational suffering. Uh, if you've ever been to a lottery or held a lottery or you saw one maybe in Waiting for Superman or the movie, the lottery, the documentary, the lottery, it's really painful. The, the demand far out exceeds the supply. Last year, we had 17,000 applicants for 3,000 seats. And so 14,000 children we're not lucky enough to get a world-class education. So it was that, that educational suffering, which was part of the uh, decision-making. Um, but the project from the get-go was not to sort of create a boutique model of success. It was really, at scale, could you get extraordinary, extraordinary quality? Uh, as I began to conclude that the system was fundamentally broken and exceedingly difficult to change, the urgency around creating an alternative model at scale that was exceptionally good uh, became more and more urgent. Because of the network's rapid growth, another of the book's themes is simply the challenges of managing a growing organization. And you discussed several ways in which you had to formalize policies across the network. First, by adopting a policy on staff dating, guidelines on physical interactions with students, a more standardized approach to determining a teacher's pay. Individually, all of those policies make good sense, but they point to a common challenge facing charter networks, which is how to achieve scale without starting to look a lot like the bureaucratic school district you're seeking to replace or at least serve as an alternative to. Is that a tension you feel in managing success? And if so, how do you navigate it? Well, I, I think it's really important to have a North Star. And I think that can, um, can't make the tension go away, but I think it can relieve the tension. And for us, the North Star is... Um, student joy, and academic mastery. And so if you know that teaching and learning is your priority, then you can figure out what are the policies and practices that are going to support 
that North Star. And so that's always uh, guided us. Um, and, you know, it makes what is incredibly difficult work. I think sometimes people think that what is incredibly difficult work, you know, a tad easier, but I think sometimes people think that as you get bigger, it gets easier. Uh, and, um, you know, teaching every single child to read and to read well is really, really challenging when the kids are little to ensure that all kids are mastering algebra in eighth grade is really, really difficult to ensure that all kids by 11th grade have a mastery of 65,000 years of human history. These are, that's hard. (laughs) And so it doesn't actually get easier. As I said at the top of the episode, the academic results at success really speak for themselves. But if I were to Google success academies, I'd quickly find two high-profile New York Times stories, one on a principal who circulated a list of difficult students who had to go, and another about a first-grade teacher caught on video chastising a student in harsh terms. You make a strong case in the book that these episodes were atypical, even on the part of the educators involved, and that you had already taken action to address them before the stories appeared. But you conclude that they've had staying power because they fit the dominant narrative of charter schools. What is that narrative, and what does it miss about schools like success? Well, you know, I, uh, I, I do think that there is a dominant narrative, and I think it, it stems, you know, the, the dominant narrative is that um, charters don't educate special ed kids, and the only problem with that is that, at least at success, we do, or, you know, the the narrative is that uh, kids are counseled out who are hard to educate, and the only problem with that is that our student attrition rates are low and significantly lower than the district. The narrative is that, um, you know, the discipline is very harsh, And um, the problem with that is that our schools are warm and loving places, and in 12 years, we've only expelled one student. So the the data uh, does not match uh, the narrative. And then the question is, well, why does the narrative exist if it's not true? And I would argue that it is uh, a narrative that is put out often has a very particular so- source, uh, kind of unions and the attendant alphabet groups or folks who've never been to see our schools or have never studied the data. But I also think that, you know, we're, we're threatening to the system because we prove that there's nothing wrong with the children and that there's a system that is really harming kids by not allowing them access to educational excellence. And I think at the heart of the matter is kind of the threat there that, you know, we're not intending to threaten, but we do by our very existence. You just made a comment about the harsh discipline at charter schools being sort of in some ways a myth. At the same time, you do defend the value of suspensions as a disciplinary strategy and even include their use as one of 16 core principles you offer at the end of the book 
that success is committed to. And this certainly runs counter to recent conventional wisdom in education that we should be minimizing exclusionary discipline at all costs. Why should suspensions still be part of educators' toolkits? Yeah, and I would just point out, uh, Marty, how recent that is, right? Um, for um, this is a very new perspective that somehow suspending a kid for one day is going to somehow harm them. Uh, I, I don't find that to be the case. And I do think there, uh, you know, schools have an obligation to protect the safety of other children and, frankly, even the teacher. Um, you know, teachers are often bitten at work. Uh, we had uh, a child throw a metal stool at a teacher's head, and she had to be brought to the emergency room. Um, you know, you, you do have to make sure that kids and families know that there are standards of conduct that must be abided by. And so I think it's, um, you know, people are living in a little bit of a, a, an idealized world where they can't imagine a kid being violent towards other children or to, towards adults. And, and it can be unsafe to work in schools. It can be unsafe for other children. I mean, witness what terrible tragedy happened in New York at Urban Assembly. Uh, we have one kid who's dead, another's in a coma, and another's in jail. Uh, violence is unfortunately mm -hmm. part of our school system, and we have to find effective ways to address it so that all students and staff are safe. Another area in which the book will challenge at least some readers' beliefs is standardized testing, the role of which you defend rather vigorously. What do critics of standardized testing get wrong? Well, I think um, there's an assumption that because there are bubbles and multiple choice, that it has to be rote and unthinking. And that's just not the case. There are good tests and poor tests. There are good multiple choice tests, and there are poor written response tests. Um, tests can be of high quality or of low quality. Uh, in the case of the uh, th third through eighth grade tests, we don't have a choice, uh, by the way, as a school, whether we take them. It's mandated in New York State. And we find often that very affluent people pay to get their kids tutored on tests. Look at the SAT preparation. It's big business. People pay a lot of money to get their kids prepared for those tests. And we're serving... Um, kids who are um, quite poor and their parents don't have that money necessarily, and, and we don't believe they should be denied uh, the opportunity to ace what we think of as fairly good thinking tests. What's the end game for charter schools in New York City? Do you envision a day when all of the city schools will operate as charters, as is basically the case now in New Orleans? Or is that even the right goal? Well, 
I think there's an awful lot of resistance, uh, political resistance, uh, from the unions and certain politicians. So I think uh, in the near term, that's going to be a little hard. Uh, but uh, we're, we surpassed the 100,000 mark in New York, uh, and it took 18 years to get there. And I think we will be at about 200,000 in the next four or five years, and that will be 20% of the students. Let me change text slightly to ask you about another aspect of the book. You interweave the story of success academies with your fascinating family history, starting with your maternal grandparents' immigration to the U.S. from Poland in the 1930s. Why did you include this material side-by-side, side, the launch of success academies? Well, uh, the book is my memoir, and obviously my personal history is, is, is part of that. Um, but I do think it is uh, important uh, to know uh, the difficulty and tenacity uh, of my four grandparents. Uh, you know, my, my grandfather uh, is a Holocaust survivor, as is my mother, and his commitment, as you can see from the poetry, to uh, a just society uh, and his uh, personal travise in escaping uh, Austria, uh, you know, has affected my mother and, of course, me and the family. Uh, and I was fascinated to learn that my uh, great-grandmother was an indentured servant in Harlem, where I started my first school. And not many people know that um, Jews coming from Poland entered into indentured uh, servant relationships. My grandmother was one for seven years before she got her freedom. And I think th that struggle and that persistence and that tenacity uh, has been passed down, uh, and it's part of where I get uh, my inspiration uh, when the going gets tough um, to keep on going. You're an historian by training. How will historians look back on the school choice movement? Well, I don't know about the school choice movement per se. I, I think when people look back on these battles, it's just going to seem utterly crazy. That people were opposed to science five days a week, inquiry-based science. People opposed uh, schools that offered, uh, you know, black and brown kids from Harlem, Bed-Stuy, the South Bronx, Chess, uh, as part of their curriculum, and, and, and the unions and politicians were opposing that, it, I think it's going to seem strange. And, and, and mind you, Marty, in New York, as I mentioned before, we are spending $31 billion every year, and the vast majority of schools are not teaching kids to read or count on the most basic level. You started your career in politics, and 
admit in the book that part of you would still love to be mayor of New York City. Clearly, a decision to enter politics, again, is not one that you've made at this point, but how and when do you think you'll make it? I really can't answer that question, but uh, I... I can tell you that, you know, I I feel very compelled to uh, start, uh, finish, kind of, I mean, it's never finished, but uh, complete what I've started. I have 12,000 kids in elementary who don't have a middle school or a high school to go to. And at this very moment, I am battling with Mayor de Blasio uh, to get even though there are 65,000 empty seats in 112 chronically underutilized buildings with more than 300 seats. And so I've got I've to make sure that our kids uh, get to go to middle school and high school before I think about other things. My guest today has been Eva Moskowitz, founder and CEO of Success Academy's Charter Schools and the author of The Education of Eva Moskowitz. You can find a review of her book online at educationnext.org. Eva, congratulations on the book, and thanks for being part of the podcast. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to the EdNext podcast. If you like what you've heard, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or another platform so that you don't miss an episode. And while you're at it, be sure to check out our archives, where you can find each of the 100 episodes we've recorded since we launched in 2015. Talk to you next week.